There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So, a number of years ago, and this is going to seem like a bit of an odd introduction to a Christmas or an Advent sermon, but just bear with me. A number of years ago, a Will Ferrell movie came out in which he played a NASCAR driver, a man named Ricky Bobby. I remember this film quite distinctly because I was introduced to it by my American cousins while our family was visiting them in South Carolina. While I don't want to go into too many of the details of this movie, it does function as something of a critique of certain elements of modern culture. It pokes fun at NASCAR, Southern stereotypes, the pursuit of wealth, and a number of other things, including cultural Christianity. In particular, there is a scene where the family is gathered for a feast, a feast of takeout. And Will Ferrell begins saying grace by praying to the Lord baby Jesus. And he continues to pray to tiny infant Jesus until when challenged by his wife that Jesus did grow up, he explains that he likes the Christmas Jesus the best. And I won't go into details because it's something of an irreverent scene, but the whole scene degrades until various members of his family end up describing how they each like to picture Jesus. One son likes to picture Jesus as a samurai fighting off ninjas. And the family friend likes to picture Jesus as the front man to Leonard Skinner. And while I don't necessarily recommend this movie, this scene does capture how often we like to limit and shape Jesus into a mold of our own making. Our society likes to do this, making Jesus into merely a good moral teacher, if they even acknowledge he exists. And within our church, we often picture Jesus, especially at Christmas time, as simply the meek and mild child in a manger. But our passage this morning from Isaiah paints a picture of Jesus whose kingly reign is a far cry from his humble birth. Broadly speaking, Isaiah is speaking here to three aspects about the Messiah. 
He is first speaking to the Messiah's the, the Messiah and his rule. And those are verses one through five. This is for people who take notes, by the way. You guys can write down these points. In these passages, in verses one through five, Isaiah tells us of the righteousness and anointing of the Messiah, and we'll see the manner in which he justly rules his people. The second point is a description of the Messiah's kingdom in verses six through nine. Here, Isaiah is describing the Edenic, peaceful nature of the Messiah's kingdom. And finally, in verse 10, Isaiah paints a picture of the Messiah's court. Isaiah speaks of the final resting place of the Messiah and who it is who will enjoy the blessing of coming before his throne, of entering into his court. Before we get to our text this morning, I think it is helpful to touch on the situation into which Isaiah was preaching. In a number of ways today, Christians, we here today, find ourselves in similar circumstances. In Isaiah's days, in Isaiah's time rather, the glory days of Israel under King David were 250 years in the past, an ancient memory. And northern Israel had broken away from Judah some 200 years ago, and animosity between the two nations had only increased. This is described, the situation in Israel and in Judah is described well in 2 Kings 17, 15 through 17. They despised God's statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So just imagine then what it must have been like for a faithful Jew, for Isaiah, living in apostate Israel. And simply walking to and fro, he couldn't have helped but have seen the Asherah poles, the idols on the hilltops. He would have known that his neighbors, perhaps even his loved ones, were vainly worshipping idols made by their own hands. And he would have perhaps been haunted by the sounds of screams in the distance as children were sacrificed for the greed and ambitions of people who had turned away from God. And from Isaiah's perspective, there would have been very little hope for any kind of broad change or cultural repentance, since the kings and also the priests were either complicit with or actively leading the people of Israel in their sin. In Canada today, we find ourselves, in many critical ways, similarly having turned our backs to God. Albert mentioned briefly last week that the word Christmas is essentially taboo this year. But that doesn't even register on the scale compared to the other ways in which our culture is in rebellion against God. The redemptive effect that Christianity once had on Canadian society, particularly with regards to our laws and ethics, has been steadily declining for decades. Canada, and especially Toronto, have become increasingly secular, increasingly hostile to God, and increasingly dismissive of Christianity. Just this week, Canadian lawmakers had even gone so far as to put the distorted idol of postmodern sexuality on a protective pedestal. This week, Christians in Canada are recoiling from Bill C-4, which would in effect limit Christian pastor, pastors counselors, and even parents from giving the gospel to those struggling with sexual sin. 
Now, it grieves me to even have to discuss this bill this morning, but I think it is necessary because it does affect the church. And while this bill passed Parliament unanimously just this week and to a standing ovation, there is hope that it can be revised before it is made into law. And I would encourage everyone here to first kneel before God in prayer, but also to share your concerns with your MP. So given the trend of our society, we ought to be able to relate to the hopelessness that a believing Jew in Isaiah's day would have lived in. But it was into this seemingly irreparable climate of apostate Israel that Isaiah preached the good news of a coming Messiah. In chapter 6, Isaiah had promised that even though Israel would be chopped down into a stump and burned, the promise of a seed, the coming offspring of the woman from Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent, that savior that Albert described last week, he he would survive. And in chapter 9, Isaiah had promised that even though times were as dark as could be, God would not abandon his people. And this is our fa- our, one of our favorite uh, Christmas passages. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now this prophecy from Isaiah is truly remarkable, that the promised offspring would establish a government, a reign of peace without end. That the mighty God himself would come to us born as a human, a human child, given to us to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness forever. This is what Christmas is about. The eager expectation of the coming of the omnipotent God of the universe in the flesh to dwell among us and ultimately to redeem all things to himself. Now there are many facets to the coming of the Messiah. So many important aspects of the prophesied incarnation of our Savior that it simply isn't possible to cover them all in one sermon this morning. Even this morning I would like to look into his birth, his life, his loving sacrifice in the cross, and his glorious resurrection, but we simply don't have time. But one facet of the Messiah that our text is speaking to this morning is that of the kingly manner in which Jesus will rule. In particular, Isaiah goes into detail to describe the character of the Christ and to describe the essence of his kingly reign, the essence of the kingdom of God. Now, I think I've opened up another can of worms because the kingdom of God is a subject upon which much theological ink has been spilled. And using the absolute broadest categories, there are three views on the kingdom of God. The first view is that the kingdom of God is a purely future reality and that it will only arrive when Christ returns. The second view is that the kingdom of God is a present reality, but it is spiritual in nature and is manifested primarily in the church. The third view is that the kingdom of God began in earnest the morning of the third day when Christ was raised to life by God. And it is a present and growing reality. Its essence is is spiritual, but the the kingdom also brings with it physical, cultural, and societal renewal. 
And the main distinction between this last view and the first two views, which are premillennial and amillennial respectively, is that the first two primarily look forward to Christ's return in anticipation of the kingdom entering into the physical world. Now this compares to the last view, the post-millennial view, which believes that Christ's kingdom changes hearts and minds as the gospel is preached and goes forth also to cultures and nations to change them as well. So this morning, I approach our text from the last perspective, which is to say that I find our text not only to be a hope-filled description of a future kingdom, but also a helpful prescription for how we as Christians are to live as we seek to bring all creation into submission to our Messiah King. Believe me, I've had enough conversations within our church to know that my position is the minority position. I think it's the biblical position, to be quite frank with you, but I'm sure you also think yours is the biblical position, so no hard feelings. Now, if you have a different perspective on the kingdom, I would like to make the following appeal to you. Regardless of whether you think the kingdom is a present or a future reality, regardless of whether you think the ultimate course of human history is on its way up or on its way down until Christ's second coming, regardless of all of this, we can likely agree that whatever way history is going, it does so in ebbs and flows. There are times when the immediate trajectory of humanity, of our society, of our culture, even of our city, is downward into chaos, and there are times when it is hopeful and bright, as when there is revival, and when the gospel is making a tremendous impact. Therefore, as we read about the Messiah and his kingdom this morning, whatever your eschatological outlook, we can unite in striving through prayer and every other means that we are availed of, that the immediate course of our society and culture would be one that acknowledges Savior Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So then, main point of the sermon, that was all introduction. This Christmas, as we remember Christ's first humble advent in a manger 2,000 years ago, let us live out the kingdom of God even as we hope in his glorious second advent. And having set perhaps the record for the longest, but hopefully not the most convoluted introduction, let's turn to our text this morning. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Isaiah 11, verse 1, and let us read about our Messiah, Jesus Christ. For those of you taking notes, we are now at point one, the Messiah and his reign. Verse 1, there shall come forth a fruit from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. While I don't have time to unpack it this morning, the promised Savior that Albert discussed last week is traced through Scripture from Eve through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and ultimately, as our text this morning refers, to one of David's descendants. Jesse, of course, was David's father, and it would be from his kingly lineage that the Messiah would come. In Isaiah's time, however, the Davidic lineage was bereft of glory, and in a few hundred years, the lineage itself would actually seemingly be wiped out when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon. Nevertheless, we are promised 
the Messiah in the line of David. Nevertheless, Jesus, when he ascended to reign in heaven, would fulfill God's promise to have a descendant of David on his throne. And in our passage this morning, Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of the Lord resting on Jesus. And to understand the significance of this, we must understand that the Holy Spirit operated in something of a different way in the Old Testament. Not with regards to salvation. That still involved the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. But the Holy Spirit seemed to be poured out in specific ways in the Old Testament on specific people. Notably, he was poured out to the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. But this anointing of the Holy Spirit was not necessarily permanent. In 1 Samuel 16, God removes his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And in Psalm 51, David pleads that God not remove his spirit from him. But here we read that the Holy Spirit would rest on another king, on Christ. And to our benefit, God fulfilled this in an incredibly visual way when Jesus was baptized. As we read in Matthew 3, when Jesus rose from the waters of his baptism, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended to rest on Jesus. And a voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, we know, would never depart Jesus, but would remain with him and, as we read here in Isaiah, would equip him for his office as king. The Holy Spirit would provide to Christ wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. All of these are qualities that the Bible describes as necessary for a ruler king. But the capstone with which the Spirit equips the Messiah to reign is with the fear of God, which is so important that Isaiah reiterates it in verse 3. Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 23 that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When Adam sinned, he hid in fear from God. But the kind of fear described here is not due to sin. Rather, it is the kind of fear that recognizes the holy God for who he is. It is a fear of reverence that elicits confidence and love. On the subject of the fear of God, the commentator John Murray said, This emphasis which scripture places upon the fear of God portrays the bond that exist, exists between religion and ethics. This is to say that what or whom we worship determines our behavior. It cannot be overstated that Isaiah is here summarizing the character of Jesus as one who delights in the fear of the Lord. And as we will see in the following verses, this fear of the Lord absolutely was reflected in his ethic, in how he reigns and rules. But before we get there, I would like us to reflect on how we have the same spirit resting in us even today. As John Calvin said, Isaiah is showing us that Christ came not empty-handed, but well supplied with all gifts that he might enrich us with them. As you seek the kingdom of God, are you someone who is known to be wise and understanding, or are you a person who is rash and impatient? Are you the kind of person who family and neighbors can come to in their moments of need, a person of counsel and might, or are you a lazy, self-focused sluggard? 
Are you the kind of person whose fear of God, whose reverence for your Savior, motivates you for, with confidence and love to pursue the glory of God without the fear of man? Let us all seek to emulate our Messiah in these ways. But returning to our text and continuing verse 3. He shall by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Since Christ is full of the empowering spirit of God, the ethic by which he rules reflects that glorious truth. Earthly rulers are swayed by what their eyes see and what their ears hear. The problem with this is that their eyes are blind to righteousness, and their ears are deaf to truth. This is as true today, I think, as it was in Isaiah's day. In the words of chapter 6, Isaiah said of the rulers that they hear but do not understand, they see but do not perceive. Those rulers who seek to operate outside of the kingdom of God, who seek to do what is right in their own eyes, do so ultimately to their own condemnation. Christ, however, rules with righteousness and equity. Whereas earthly rulers oppress the poor and the meek, the Messiah, Jesus, has special care for the weakest among us. In particular, the poor and the weak, those who recognize their own frailty and sin, those who by faith cling to Jesus are blessed under the reign of Christ, as we read in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as far as real-world application, as subject of Christ, we are told that we are his hands and his feet, and we are commissioned to care for the weak. The apostle James said that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. For this Advent, I would encourage you to plan on ways in which you can live out this ethic, whether it be caring for lonely relatives or serving with a local mercy ministry. The ending of verse 4, however, contains perhaps the most challenging aspect of the reign of Christ that we find in our text today. And it doesn't exactly come across as a Christmas verse. But Isaiah writes that the Messiah shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And as we unpack what Isaiah is saying here this morning, I would encourage you to think about how you view the Lordship of Christ. It is very common for us today to speak of Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And this is very true. Our relationship to Christ is incredibly personal. He knows everything there is to know about us, and knowing us, he loves us. And because he loves us, we love him. But he is not only our personal Lord, he is Lord of all the earth. For homework this week, I would encourage you to read Psalm 97, or perhaps to even read it once a day. It isn't very long, and I'm sure it would encourage you. But in that psalm, the psalmist taps into the absolute lordship of Christ. He writes, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. The Apostle Paul speaks in a similar way about the universal lordship of the Messiah over the entire cosmos in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, 
after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And Jesus himself speaks about his absolute lordship over both the physical and the spiritual realms. Coming to his disciples after his resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. And as as Christians, we are very happy to describe Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, but hesitant to proclaim him as Lord of all creation. And the reason for our hesitation is precisely because this claim is what the world hates. The world is happy for us to have Jesus as our personal Lord, if that works for us. But the moment we say that Jesus has authority over everything, even over them, they recoil in horror. How dare you impose your religion on me, they say. Or these days, when we proclaim the authority of Christ over culture, when we proclaim the authority of Christ over issues like abortion and marriage, we are condemned for bringing religion into politics. But the truth that the Bible speaks to, the truth that Isaiah writes here, is that the kingdom of Christ, the reach of his rod, extends over the whole earth and even over those who refuse to accept his authority. Further, we are to understand, and this is very important, that the means by which the authority of Christ is exercised over the whole earth and over the wicked is by the word of his mouth. It is by his breath, which is to say, the preaching of the gospel. As ambassadors for our king, who is over every power, we must therefore boldly preach the gospel into every area of life even, and perhaps especially, if the world hates it. The gospel that we preach is certainly salvation for sinners, yes and amen, but it is also the authority of Christ over every government. By government, I don't only mean our political political governments, but I mean our households, our professional organizations, our educational systems. Indeed, Christ is over any human institution. Christ is the king of all of them. And we must seek for all these governments to be brought into conformity with the revelation of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. For us today, this means that we must speak truth to powers if they are in rebellion to God and his word, even to authorities who can strip us of our freedoms and throw us in jail. We have been commissioned by our Messiah King on his authority to preach the gospel of his kingdom into every area of life. Isaiah doesn't pull any punches in our text this morning, and he tells us that there will be some who, hearing the word of God, reject it. There will be some who remain in rebellion against the Messiah, and Isaiah tells us that they are destined for destruction. As Peter wrote in his second epistle, speaking of Christ, we are to expect this. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, namely Christ, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, those who do not believe, they stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let us submit ourselves to the rule of Christ, And let us therefore boldly proclaim his excellencies over all creation. 
And Isaiah concludes this introduction to the Messiah, these first five verses, by saying, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. While earthly kings clothe themselves in opulent robes, the Messiah will gird himself with righteousness and faithfulness. And Isaiah's audience would have recognized that belts were actually also symbols of readiness for action, particularly given the long robes that they would have worn. In his life and ministry, Jesus, always, Jesus was always ready to act in righteousness and faithfulness. He was never caught off guard by any circumstance. Throughout the temptations of Satan, he never sinned. Despite the tricks of the scribes and the Pharisees, he never broke one commandment of God. And never during his arrest and crucifixion by the Roman authorities did he curse God. And indeed, he is ready today to meet every need that you bring to him in faith. As Christ was always ready to respond to any situation with faithfulness and righteousness, we must study his example and be ready foot soldiers, equipped to act in the same way to whatever may arise. So we come then to verses 6 to 9 in which the prophet describes the kingdom of the Messiah. So this is point two, and I'll just say points two and three are going to go by quickly, so buckle up. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The picture that Isaiah is painting is nothing less than a return to the Garden of Eden, the undoing of the, of the curse a return to the idyllic state that mankind enjoyed with God prior to the fall. Now, while a premillennialist or nonmillennialist might see this as a purely future state, I believe Isaiah, I believe Isaiah excuse me, is speaking to the radical change that occurs in men and women when, forsaking themselves, they acknowledge their sin and seek forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. Particularly, those people who are predatory, aggressive, or brutish, and I hope the wives aren't thinking of their husbands when I say this, when those people submit to the gospel of Jesus, they will be humbled and brought into fellowship with those who are peaceable. Likewise, those who are cunning, seeking to undermine and destroy, who are venomous like snakes, and I really hope the husbands aren't thinking of their wives, when those people trust in Christ for their forgiveness, they experience a change such that they might become harmless to even the most innocent of the kingdom. I don't believe that these changes will necessarily occur spontaneously, as you know, it might happen when a person places faith in Christ. They may often occur throughout the life of a believer as the believer is progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah also describes a change in appetite. The appetites of all will be made peaceful, as in Genesis 1 in the garden, when every beast of the earth ate of every green plant for food. Now this occurs at the moment of regeneration. 
by the Holy Spirit when our desires are transformed from being purely selfish into having a love for God and a love for Jesus Christ. Finally, a final thought. The enmity that exists between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between those who are of Satan and those who are of God, that conflict is being undone as sinners repent and are brought under the banner of the gospel. Indeed, in his sacrifice on the cross, Christ has already delivered the death blow to the serpent. Now, the totality of this peace, I acknowledge, will only be fully realized in the second coming of Christ. Then all the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death, all those will be once and for all defeated. And then the earth will be absolutely full of the knowledge of God. This is all the more reason for us this morning during the Advent season to look forward in eager expectation to our Lord's second coming. Even as we ourselves seek to spread peace, the peace of Christ to our friends and family far and wide this Christmas. And this brings us to our last verse for this morning in which the prophet describes the court of the Messiah, point three. In that day, the root of Jesse, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Here, Isaiah is describing Jesus as a signal flag, a standard around which all the peoples of the world will gather. Now, this is a particularly poignant truth for the prophet Isaiah, because he knew that in the near future, the pagan nations would gather around Israel and besiege the court of David, the throne of David, that holy mountain of Zion. But in this passage, he preaches the message that when the Messiah comes, the nations will gather, not in violence, but in reverence to Christ and in submission to the gospel. This idea is picked up by the Apostle John, who writes that as Moses was lifted up or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The court of the Messiah of Jesus Christ is filled with not just Jews, but it is filled with men and women of every nationality and ethnicity. Regardless of upbringing and history, if anyone but look to the crucified Christ in faith for their salvation, Having recognized their sin, they will be brought into the courts of the kingdom of God. And this is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to the patriarch Abraham so many ages ago. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Let us then have hope today as we see the gospel going throughout the world. Although in the West, Christianity is in decline, let us rejoice as we see explosions of believers in China, Asia, and Africa. Now, this text also points out Jesus' resting place, which is, even now, in his church. Even now, God is building in and through us, or even now, God is building us into his holy temple, his dwelling place in the world, until he returns. Therefore, as the author of Hebrews said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need.
God has given his people, the church, his spirit, to equip us for whatever may come, to preach the gospel of the reigning Messiah to every area of life. He has called us to be a taste of the Garden of Eden to a world that is sick under the curse of the fall. Not to not only be a place of healing, but also to spread the peace of Christ throughout the whole world to all the nations. This Christmas then, as we remember Christ's first humble, meek, and mild advent in a manger 2,000 years ago, let us live out the kingdom of God, even as we hope in his glorious second coming and the consummation of his reign. And in, by way of close, closing, um, it's fitting, I think, that uh, our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 145, um, because that's exactly the text that I want us to close with today. And we did not plan that. <laughs> Psalm 145, verse 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Amen.